Well, uh, ladies, I have some good news for you is today is the message is for all the men. So today you get to pass the baton on trying to fix us, at least for today, and then you can take it back. So I'm going to take it for just a little bit. So today is for the married, the single, the young, the not so young, the fathers, the wannabe fathers, the maybe scared you might be a father. Uh, because as men, I, I think we all share something in common, uh, though some women deal with this too. Uh, the, the thing is, I feel women do a better job than we do at dealing with it. And the it is something that is key. It's a key underlying component, especially for us as men in our quest for success. And it's summed up in one word, and that one word is autonomy. That there's something in us, in most of us, especially as men, we want to be self-governing. Okay? We don't that is, we want to get to the point in our life where we don't have anyone else telling us in life what to do or how to do it. Uh, I want to call my own shots, especially based on your Enneagram, your personality type. Some of us really want that. And to some extent, it's the American dream, at least the way it's presented to us. Uh, that For most of us as men, it's pretty much our dream to be able to, that's our definition of success, to be in control, to set the agenda in our jobs, in our lives. And for ourselves, we all want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and I want enough money to pay for it. And, and I get it. This is an alluring goal, and I think in addition to our ego, that there's other things that fuel this. If you think about it, most of the people that we admire, as men that we admire, or that we want to be like, part of the appeal is that they appear to be completely autonomous. Our corporate heroes, our athletic heroes, uh, the arts, I mean, they all appear to be operating unfettered by financial or sometimes even relational restrictions or restraint. Uh, but for you, there may be even more to it. Maybe, maybe for you, there's something else that fuels your quest for autonomy. Maybe it was the way that you were raised. If you grew up in a home that if you felt very controlled or money was tight all the time, or maybe you had to spend a season or two where you had to go live with your relatives, or maybe for you, because of the difficulty of your family experience, you're like, I don't ever, ever want to again in my life have to depend on someone or something else. And then woven into all of this is the assumption that most of us share. And the assumption is, I can handle it. I mean, if you're absolutely confident that if you're ever able to achieve autonomy in your life, that you're going to be able to handle it. In fact, that's why we're so baffled by the stories of men who have made it, and then they turn around and make some stupid decision, or they undermine their own success, or undermine their autonomy. They become their own worst enemy after they've accomplished and acquired so much. But here's what we all think. Not me. Like, if I had what they had, if I had achieved what they had achieved, I wouldn't have been so stupid to make a decision like that, to, that would, to blow it like that. When I get my chance, I'll get it right. When I can call the shots, I will call the right shots. So off we go, and time goes by, and typically for us as men, it doesn't happen fast enough, or it doesn't happen big enough. And what happens is, when it doesn't happen fast enough or big enough, or when it looks like it's never going to happen for us, it's not unusual for us as men to develop what could be termed a low-grade anger. An anger that simmers just beneath the surface. It's like we're, we're constantly frustrated. We're constantly frustrated by everything and everybody around us. This usually happens especially around 40 to 45 years old. And this is why it happens. Because eventually, usually around this time, it dawns on us 
I'm not there. I, I, I'm not even close. In fact, I'm not even sure if I'm going to get there. And in most cases, we've never even really clearly defined where there even is. And since most of us men aren't all that emotionally connected internally, we don't even recognize the source of this simmering frustration that we're experiencing. And then, to make matters worse, we take that simmering frustration and far too often we look to others and we set our sights on other things or other people and we set our sights on the wrong source. And what I mean is rather than blame ourselves, we begin to blame others. And our disappointment with ourselves eventually spills out onto the lives of the people that are closest to us. So let me just put it out there. Men, if you aren't happy with your wife, your kids, your car, or your career path, it's because you're not happy with you. And the only way to move past this constant sense of frustration is to recognize that reality. And the reason why, as a man, I feel like I can say that with confidence is because, men, you married her, you raised them, you bought it, and you chose it. And when we deny or ignore or get confused about the source of our disappointment or frustration or our anger, we get lost. And what do most of us as men do when we get lost? We drive faster. It's just generally in the wrong direction. And I'm an 80s kid, and so I love 80s music, as everybody should. And Don Henley, he got it right all those years back when he wrote these lyrics. He had a home, love of a girl, but men get lost sometimes as the years unfurl. One day he crossed some line and he was too much in this world, but I guess it doesn't matter anymore. In a New York minute, everything can change. In a New York minute, things can get pretty strange. And most of, most, if not all of us in our lives, we've seen this. We've seen a family member or a friend or a coworker where they just make a decision and you look on the outside like, that, that was so dumb. They make a decision that just, just sabotages their own life and their relationships because there's a really fine line between being as free as you can possibly be and prison, okay? There's a fine line being as free as you can possibly be and addiction, a hole that you can't dig yourself out of on your own. There's a fine line between being free as you can possibly be and irreparably blowing up some of the most important relationships in your life and destroying your legacy, your marriage, your future marriage, your relationship with your kids, and eventually your grandkids. The quest for autonomy is dangerous, and it's, a da it's dangerous because it's a thirst that cannot be quenched. It's an appetite that you cannot fully or finally satisfy. Because when you feed an appetite, what happens? It, it doesn't shrink, it grows. The more you get, the more you want. Nobody believes this, but it's true. And autonomy, autonomy is power. I mean, that's why we want it. We want the power to be able to call our own shots in our life and have the money to pay for it. And the more power that you have, the more you want. Because power is generally intoxicating and intoxicated people don't tend to make good decisions. It's part of why I often say that the older men get, the more we suck at making friends. Because we get so busy to stay on top of trying to control everything. And all, when all of our emotional energy is spent, and when we don't make time for other men to really get to know us, to know what drives us, what motivates us, who can speak truth into our life when we need it. Instead, personally and professionally, before long, we surround ourselves with people who don't have the courage to say no. Nobody with the courage to say, you know, I, I, I think you need to rethink that. Or I think maybe you need to take a different approach. Or we've kept them in the dark as to what motivates us or the, or the thing that we struggle with. The, those internal battles that we're trying to keep hidden from the people around us. Which just leads us to more isolation. 
And you've seen this. You've been on the other side of this. And our quest, eventually most of us, for most of us, our, if not all of our relationships, most if not all of our relationships, ultimately become a means to an end. Everybody around us becomes a potential customer or a potential client or a potential contact or a potential connection that will help me achieve my goals. We begin to meet individuals and we're sizing them up. Can you add value to my life and where I'm wanting to go? Which just leads to further isolation. And success just makes it worse because before long, everyone around you is either getting a paycheck from you or is related to you. And their honesty would be costly to them. So they keep quiet because they're afraid to say anything. So when we accidentally or purposefully embrace this misguided approach of what it means to be successful in our masculinity, at the end of the day, we're frustrated because we aren't there or we're disappointed and isolated when we do get there. And men, I want us to avoid this because there is too much at stake. And what's at stake is the next generation. And what's at stake is your legacy. And you don't want to risk that. It's too much to risk. So Father's Day is the perfect day for us to talk about this. And to help us with this, we're going to look at Israel's second king. We're all familiar with King David. Uh, When King David was around 50 years old, he made a decision that would become his most famous, his, his most infamous decision as king. Now, he didn't know that at the time because we never know it when we make these decisions it's at the time. But the, the time this, at the time this story comes around, David's been king for about 20 years, and as was the custom for kings in that era, he had multiple wives, multiple concubines, he had enormous wealth, he had enormous power, and early on in his life, he had developed a reputation for being a great warrior. David was a man's man. He already secured his legacy. He was the king that secured the borders and created peace for the nation of Israel, but now he's in his 50s. He's not so cute anymore. Uh, he's not satisfied. And you know the story. Uh, One evening, he's roaming around on his palace roof uh, overlooking the city, and he sees his neighbor's wife bathing in what should have been the privacy of her home. And let's be honest, guys, this probably wasn't the first time that he wandered over to that particular part of the roof to stare in a particular direction. However, on this night, he he sends a servant to find out who she is. And the servant takes a huge risk. He actually tries to wave David off from what would turn out to be the worst decision of his life. This would be the moment that David would go back to give anything to relive. This was the decision he would give anything to go back and unmake. When the servant returns, he chooses his words very carefully. He says, King David, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. It's like, like, you know him. Like, she's not just a body. She's someone's daughter. And not only that, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. You know Uriah, the honorable, brave Uriah, who you have fought beside, who has risked his life for you. In fact, right now, he's out in the mud risking his life for you. And that should have been enough to send David back inside. But you've seen this. Powerful people have a very difficult time listening to payroll people. David sent messengers to get her. I mean, what could they say? What could she say? He's he's the king. And you know the story. David and Bathsheba spend the night together, probably more than one night together. And she becomes pregnant. She sends a message to David, letting him know. And David does now what he's now in the habit of doing. He powers up. And he comes up up with a plan. Because at the end of the day, like we as men tend to do when we make a dumb decision, We decide we're going to control the outcomes. 
And he decides he's going to control the outcome. He informs Bathsheba of his plan. She decides to play along. He sends a message to Joab, his military commander, to send Uriah back. Bathsheba's husband, he's on this military campaign. David says, send him back. Send him back with a progress report of what's going on with the battle, the siege. And when Uriah shows up, uh, he gives David an update. David smiles. And then he encourages uh, Uriah to go home to his wife. And Bathsheba was expecting him. And, And I don't know. But I would expect that when Uriah was leaving the palace that David just breathed a sigh of relief. He breathed a sigh of relief because he was able to so slyly avoid a scandal. But you know the story. The next morning, instead of going home, Uriah did the honorable thing. He slept at the entrance of the palace with the guards assigned to protect David. And David couldn't believe it, so he sends a messenger to go get Uriah before he leaves the city. And when he gets there, David says, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Now, Uriah, because he's a dude, he he knows what David's getting at. And listen to his answer. He says, well, because the the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab, my lord's men, are camped in the open country. How could I go home and eat and drink and make love to my wife as surely as I live? I would not do such a thing. My my friends are living in mud and sweat and they're only eating whatever they can carry or kill. How could I go home and enjoy the comforts and eat and drink and make love to my wife? Now, gentlemen, there is a man to take your cues from, free to do what he wants, but out of respect for God and his brothers, says no. He says no. How, How could I do this? And that, that's who your wife hopes she married. That's who my wife hopes she married. That's who you want your daughter to marry. Single guys, that's who you should strive to become. But David, however, he's, he's so put off by this. He, he, he insists Uriah spends another night in town, invites him to dinner, but this time gets the guy good and drunk, points him towards home, sends him out this way. He's thinking, surely now, surely now he will do what I would do if I were in his situation. But but David has lost his way. David is nothing like Uriah. And even with his judgment compromised by some good booze, Uriah again went to sleep on his mat among his master's servants, David's servants. And he did not go home. Guys, when your kids, your friends, your wife tell your story someday, and they will tell your story, what story do you want told? Because both of these men in this drama are writing the stories of their lives, and we, we write the story of our lives one decision at a time. And certainly some decisions are more important than others, but every decision becomes a permanent part of our story and our lives. And at some point, due to old age or due to something else, we will be unable to save our lives because eventually we will die. That we cannot control. control. But what we can control and what we can do is we can protect and we can preserve our legacy and that we can ensure that we are living a story worth telling, that we're living a story that we want to be told someday by our kids and family about the kind of man that we were. Now, David realizes that he's been outmaneuvered, and the fascinating thing is he's being outmaneuvered by a man who didn't even realize that he was maneuvering. 
I mean, Uriah is just being who he is. He's doing the honorable thing. So David does the dishonorable thing, the unthinkable thing. He resorts to a behavior that in his pre-king years he would have totally condemned. And the fascinating thing is he's absolutely confident that this will remain a secret. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he hands it to Uriah. He hands him the letter that will end his life. He wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest, and then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. And what can Joab do? David's the king. Joab obeys the order. And the detail we often miss, if you've ever read this part of the Old Testament, Uriah isn't the only one who is killed. We're told that Uriah is killed along with several of his sword brothers. It wasn't just Uriah who paid with his life in this attempt by David to control the outcome. And when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And everybody knew. This was planned in secret, but in a household that is run by servants and slaves, there were no secrets. Secrets are currency. And what David didn't know in the moment is that with this one decision, he had permanently, permanently undermined his credibility and his legacy. I mean, what else do most people know about King David? Like maybe David and Goliath? That's pretty much about it. Beyond that, this story is pretty much it. This event marked and marred his reputation for the rest of his life. But worse, worse than losing his credibility as king, David permanently undermined his moral authority with his children. This is so important. His affair with Bathsheba didn't cost him his crown. It cost him his family. And he paid in that area for the rest of his life. The baby dies... Later, his oldest son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister. David can't bring himself to punish his son. He's just so lost. So Absalom, David's favorite son, kills his half-brother to avenge his sister's shame. Again, David does nothing, and he refuses to discipline Absalom. So Absalom Absalom eventually raises an army. He marches on the capital. David has to flee the city to add insult to injury. His son has sex in a very public way with all of his father's concubines. David has to go to war with his son. And then against David's instructions, Joab, David's military commander, slaughters Absalom. And now David's heart is broken again. His dreams for his son, his dreams for the kingdom, none of it can come true. He maintains his crown, but everything else is in shambles. All of the most, things most important to David are gone. They cannot be retrieved. In a New York minute, everything changed. But this story isn't the whole story because it never is. There's always a backstory, And you, you may know how this entire debacle begins. And I skipped this part because it begins like this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, when the weather's good, the crops are planted, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. David sent all his sword brothers 
David sent all the men who knew him best. David sent all the men who knew him before he was king, who rose to power with him, who had hidden in the caves with him during the times, times of King Saul. All the men who had access to him, he sent away. But David remained in Jerusalem alone, isolated. The others can fight. I'm king. I'm entitled. And this is so important. David got himself into trouble when he isolated himself from the community of men to whom he was most accessible and accountable. The king's men. The kind of men we need in our life. And in their absence, in the distance that he created, in his attempted to control outcomes and to maintain his autonomy, he paid in the area most dear where you cannot control outcomes because that ability is a myth. He paid in the area of his family. And men, myth, autonomy is a myth. It's a trap. It's a setup for failure. It's an unworthy goal. And you may or may not be familiar with the name Albert Speer. Albert Speer, I'm fascinated by World War II history. Albert Speer was actually Adolf Hitler's architect. Uh, Hitler did not trust many people, but he trusted Albert Speer and eventually appointed him as the Minister of Armaments and War Production. Uh, he was at Hitler's side from the very beginning as Hitler rose to power. After the war, Albert Speer uh, stood trial in Nuremberg he, uh, for his war crimes. He spent about 20 years in prison. He was released in the late 60s. He died around 1981. And his memoirs were, were published under uh, the title Inside the Third Reich. And according to Speer, Hitler knew nothing about his enemies. He refused to listen to anyone. He trusted his inspirations, no matter how contradictory they were. In fact, Speer says that Hitler's uh, inspirations were driven by basically a, a, a contempt for everyone. And, and here's a section that serves as a constant reminder to, the, to resist, to resist the lure of autonomy and entitlement. He says, there's a special trap for every holder of power, whether the director of a company, the head of state, or the ruler of a dictatorship. His favor is so desirable to his subordinates that they will sue for it by any means possible. Servility becomes endemic among his entourage who compete among themselves in their show of devotion. And he says, here's what happens as a result. This, in turn, exercises a sway upon the ruler who becomes corrupted in his turn. And having watched this happen right before his very eyes, he says, the key to the quality of a man in power is how he reacts to this situation. He says, I have observed a number of industrialists and military men who knew how to fend off this danger. And then here's the statement that should get our attention, especially as men. Hitler himself put up no visible resistance to the evolution of accord. Men, regardless of how old you are, what season of life you're in, how much life you may have ahead of you, resist the evolution of accord. Resist the evolution and the temptation of surrounding yourself with people who will tell you what you want to hear rather than what you need to hear. If it will leave you isolated and vulnerable. And resist the evolution of isolation and autonomy that comes with time and success, the isolation that almost always follows on the heels of advance, advancement and achievement. Give people who don't work for you and who don't need anything from you, give them access to you. And here's why. 
because you're not created for autonomy. It's a myth. It's a trap. It's an unworthy goal. It will leave you isolated and vulnerable. And while you may not lose your crown, the tangible rewards of your success, you may lose your soul. You may lose your legacy. You may lose your family. You were not created for autonomy. You were created for authentic community. And if you're a Jesus follower, that means you're part of a body. And when a body part goes rogue, what do we do? We diagnose that body part as a disease, and we either cure it or disease, and we cure it or we remove it. And autonomy is an appetite that cannot be fully and finally satisfied. It is a thirst that cannot be quenched. So, if God sees fit to make you a king, if he sees fit to give you success in the realm of your career, your career path, and your finances, in the marketplace, in education, whatever it might be, so be it. But when that day comes... Keep those who knew you before all that. Keep them close. And if you should maybe never achieve the success you dreamed of, again, make sure that you've got men alongside you who are able to help you keep your sights on what matters most and who matters most. Rather than allowing low-grade anger and frustration to take hold and take root in your heart and your life. And make sure... There are trusted people who don't work for you. They don't need anything from you. They have access to you. People who are not going to be impressed with your success, and they're also not going to be impressed with your lack of success. But they're oh so important. And in the springtime when kings go go off to war, go with them. Never consider yourself better than or above it all. You were not made for autonomy. You were made for authentic community. And if you embrace that, if you get men in your life, like I am so blessed to have had in my life, you, you will survive and you will thrive. And you will have a story worth telling. A story that you want your friends and your family, your children, perhaps your wife, perhaps your grandchildren. The story you will want them to tell. That you, they'll be proud to tell. And the help, the help for this is closer than you think. For example, this kind of was, was touched on. For example, right now, we actually have, we have two or three couples, small groups going on right now. And you could be a part of it. We have two newer, that started since the beginning of the year, the year, two newer men's groups. They're both very different in format and feel. But the common denominator is creating a space and a place for men. Uh, there's a Tuesday night men's group led by one of our leaders, Cabin Kramer. We've got a picture of he and his family up here. Uh, they utilize the East E-Free buildings across from the laundromat on North Woodlawn. They're currently going through the book of John, and these guys are gathering because quite simply, as they shared with one another initially, they're just looking for friendship because it goes back to what we as men, the older we get, have a hard time doing. And they're looking for real friendship. Then there's the Sunday evening Iron and Ale men's group that's meeting around a fire in the driveway. Though today it'll be a little warm. But uh, Chris, you got to hear from him where the guys can come together and enjoy a cigar or a beer and, and have an open conversation about faith or life or relationships or whatever you want or just sit around the fire and just be quiet and listen, listen to the other guys. My, my point is if you don't already have some men in your life, that are doing life with you like what we've described. There are options. It's not that hard. There are options connected to, to new life. If you're interested in either of those, those men here are here today. Uh, Cabin's actually off here to, to my left, and you saw his picture. Uh, the guys that are in those groups, the people that are in the small groups, they're here today. You can talk to them uh, before you leave. Or if you want to start a group, 
You can do that. We'll do what we can to help you do that. Just fill out an orange card. And if you don't talk to these individuals and say, I'm interested in this, or I'd like to start one, or I'd like to have a conversation, or if you're joining us online, reach out to us, contact us, we'll help you. But just take that step. All you have to do is ask. But just don't put it off any longer. There's just too much at stake. Let me pray for us. Father, I, I thank you so much that for me, one of the things that gives full credibility as I read the text, both the Old and the New Testament, is because there's no sugarcoating. We see the ugliness, we see the darkness of people that, that supposedly even had a heart for you, and yet they made the most stupid and even evil decisions. And yet somehow in all of this, you just recognize that's in us and you still love us as your kids and, and willing to pay the price to reconcile us with you. But Father, I'm so grateful that we have these stories that we can learn from. And so I pray, especially for the men in the room and those listening to my voice, God, that you would help us because we're stubborn and we're resistant. And the older we get, the more we just don't feel like we've got the emotional energy to deal with certain things and make new friends and make relationships. But God... The thing that we tend to step away from is the thing that we need the most. So I pray for each one of us that you would give us a sense of the guys that are actually already in our life that you would call us to connect with, to make good choices about who it is that we invite in, and give us the courage to do it. Father, I pray all these things as we celebrate Father's Day, we celebrate you, the perfection of Father, everything that we should be but that we aren't. I pray for the fathers that are listening to me right now, and God, pray that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen them, that you would give them wisdom and strength to do what they need to do to be the best fathers that they can be, because they're going to screw up. And I pray even when they screw it up, that you will help them to handle that well, and to own it, and be honest about it, and to reconcile those things. And for those of us that are further down the road, Father, that maybe we, we, we created some father wounds with our kids. I pray, God, that you would help us to reconcile those to create healing where there's been hurt. And Father, for the rest of this day, we just thank you. We thank you for the food that we're going to eat. We thank you for the time that we get to celebrate together and just connect and have fun. And I thank you, Father, that in your graciousness that you've given us this opportunity. So, Father, we thank you for it. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.